I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Do I accept? I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello and welcome to another 80 Days Christmas Minisode. In this festive edition, we'll be exploring further than we've ever been before, as you'll soon see. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our Minisode format, it's a chance for one of the three regular hosts to take the reins on a story that's focused on a particular time and space. Before we begin, I'd like to say a very special thank you to all of our listeners and to everyone that supported the show over the past year one that's been extremely eventful for all three of us. It means a lot to us that so many of you follow what we do so passionately, and we can't wait to bring you even more content in the coming 12 months. For now, though, suffice it to say that we all wish you the very best during this festive season, wherever in the world you happen to be. And without further ado, let's get on with the show. Part 1. Houston. In 1832, a pair of enterprising brothers bought a plot of land in Texas, with the aim to found a new city. Those men were John Kirby Allen and his brother, Augustus Chapman Allen, and the city they founded would eventually go on to become Houston, Texas. Houston, as the United States grew, would prosper, becoming a crucial port and a centre of the Texas oil industry. It was the city's access to the sea, as well as increasing political pressure to diversify the investment bounties of the space race, that led to Houston entering the race to become NASA's space flight home in 1961. Beating out 22 other cities, the city was selected in September of that year. This will make Houston the command post for the nation's first attempt to put a man on the moon and beyond, the Houston Chronicle stated at the time. Houston would soon become synonymous with America's space ambitions, leaving the local basketball and baseball teams to be named the Rockets and Astros respectively, and the Space Center to attract more than one million tourists every year. As Houston became one of the key locations for those that were trying to put it up to the USSR in their two-horse race to the moon, it started to attract those kinds of people that, as they say, had the right stuff. Most know Armstrong, the slightly strange man who was not necessarily what everyone expected for one of the most famous men of history, and plenty know Aldrin, the grinning magnet of charisma and will who once punched a conspiracy theorist in the face for denying he had done what he had done, because Aldrin goes where he wants and knows where he went. In this episode though, we will focus on three of the lesser known astronauts of this mythical, mystical time, and how they made Houston's most memorable Christmas. Part 2. The Astronauts We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. December 27th, 1968, Houston. Ken Mattingly 
himself an astronaut in training, called over the microphone to a squat cone filled with three men that was scorching through the Earth's atmosphere, crushing the men inside with 6.84 Gs. Houston, Apollo 8, through Huntsville, he repeated again to an unresponsive vessel. Houston, Apollo 8, over. Came to reply from Jim Lovell, one of the three men on board the first manned vessel to orbit the moon. To understand the meaning of this moment, we have to go back into the history of the space program and see what put those men on that ship and how Christmas came to be the backdrop more than once. NASA was not always the success story they would be in Christmas 1968, and they were feeling the pressure of one dead president's legacy and expectation breathing down their neck to get the job done before the end of 1969. The men, and they were mainly men, that made up the wide cast of characters that contributed to that routine call several years later. Well, let's begin with three of them. The three that made that first flight to the moon on board Apollo 8. James Lovell, who had become better known for his involvement in the Apollo 13 mission. James Anders, the least experienced crew member. And Frank Borman, the commander, and very much the man in charge. Borman's story in itself is... It's a friggin' book. He got into the famed West Point Military Academy after three people in front of him decided they didn't want to take up their places. At West Point, he wasn't exactly a physically imposing presence, but got involved with football all the same, as a manager. Working with the offensive coach there at the time, a man called Vince Lombardi, who would win five NFL championships, making him the most successful coach of all time until this past year when Belichick made it to six. Borman graduated eighth in his class, eighth out of 680. He wanted to be a pilot, but blew out his eardrum, which reneged his flight status. Desperate to get back in the air, he eventually underwent a pretty insane sounding procedure, including depositing pellets of radium inside his ear canal in order to build back the eardrum. Even weirder, it worked. His eardrum grew back and even developed a layer of protective tissue, giving him, you know, like super eardrums. Eventually, he regained his flight status, back under one of the Tuskegee Airmen, the African-American fighter pilots of World War II. He went on to become a pilot under none other than the legendary Chuck Yeager, the first man to break the sound barrier on Bellex One, under whose command Borman became a gristle test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base, including an incident with an exploded engine at 40,000 feet, which he still managed to bring into land, with added running away from the smouldering wreckage as it was about to explode. Probably that's what you're actually meant to do in those circumstances, not just in action movies. In 1962, he was accepted onto the astronaut program, setting him on his path to riding what was simply known as the engine off a Florida launch pad and onwards to the moon. His chance to become a true astronaut came as a part of the Gemini missions. While the earlier Mercury missions were solo flights, Gemini missions were, unsurprisingly, for two astronauts together. Foreman's partner in the craft was Navy man. Jim Lovell. It was said of Lovell that if you couldn't get along with Jim Lovell, you couldn't get along with anyone. Lovell also had to fight hard to get into the programme, and had been the eighth man for the seven solo Mercury missions, including an awkward breakfast, when he thought he'd gotten in, only to count the number of men at the breakfast table and realise something was wrong. Gemini 7 was a tough mission, and it was intended to literally be an endurance test for the two men, putting them in orbit for two weeks but that long window allowed Mission Control to prep and launch a second ship to trial a simulated docking. 
putting Gemini 6 in orbit and bringing the two ships into a few feet of each other within Earth orbit. That too was a December mission, and on the 16th, before Gemini 6 peeled off or let Borman and Lovell finish their endurance run, Wally Shira, a bit of a practical joker, called out, This was the first human musical performance in space, not to mention the first Santa Claus sighting from orbit. Gemini 7 was a success, and the pairing of Borman and Lovell was found to be a winning combination. Lovell would stay in the Gemini program for now, going back up in Gemini 12, but Borman would move to the Apollo program, which was to be the main event. Apollo 1 was set for 1967, and during a simulation, frayed wires caused a fire in the Apollo cabin as it sat on the ground. The hatch door was too difficult to open, and three brave men lost their lives to the smoke and flames as Mission Control listened on. It's impossible to overestimate the impact of this on the men and the mission. In one sense, it was a gut punch to everyone involved. But the questioning it engendered to improve and stop any more loss of life meant they would become a tighter unit and one man would be at the centre of that. Frank Borman was in charge of the follow-up investigation, and some of the follow-up exacting scrutiny placed on those engineers tasked with building the other Apollo units and correcting the mistakes. The pressure broke some of the men, who were also feeling significant guilt, one must imagine, at the failure of Apollo 1. One such man started drawing organisational charts with a significant role for someone called Big Daddy. They were carted away for assessment. Borman took an ever more important role in helping to stabilise the programme in order to get things back on track, challenging the engineers, making sure everything would be just right. Apollo 1 delayed matters and gave the entire endeavour the wake-up call it needed, albeit at the unbelievably harsh price of three of America's finest men. But progress continued and the programme moved on to the Saturn V rocket, which was to carry the Apollo missions to the moon 363 feet in height, 60 foot taller than the Statue of Liberty, with five stage one engines burning three tons of liquid oxygen and kerosene per second. It was simply referred to as the engine. With 160 million horsepower, when it first properly let rip for Apollo 4 in November 1967, its designer, ex-Nazi Werner von Braun, was heard to shout, Go, baby, go! pressure built for the missions as the Cold War world seemed to be sliding into chaos, the Tet Offensive, the assassination of Martin Luther King. The mess of the world may have been one of the reasons NASA decided to upend their own schedule, decide that Apollo 8 should be the one to go to the moon first, and not Apollo 9. Other reasons included Russians emboldened by the tragedy of Apollo 1 pushing ahead, and the steady grumbling of the US Congress, who at any moment might stop the flow of money. 
The third member of the Apollo 8 crew was James Anders, another Air Force man, who had also come up under Chuck Yeager, but hadn't gotten on well with him. Yeager twice refused Anders a place at Edwards Air Base, and so he got himself a better offer at NASA. He'd strategize his aptitude tests, going for speed over accuracy, and beat the next highest score by 150%. Between the brash but talented rookie and the tried and true Lovell and Borman, they were selected over another crew for the hastily arranged trip to the moon. So hasty was it that Von Braun said, the moon in the sky has become a deadline display device. The Colossus computer was calibrated, programmed and loaded onto the Saturn V with all 38 kilobytes of computing power that would guide the ship. The date and time for launch were set at December 21st, 1969, 07.51 hours. The Navy was put on standby to pick up Apollo 8 when it fell into the sea after its mission. But this would require some convincing, and Vietnam was in full swing. The man that needed convincing had a reputation for toughness, one Admiral John McCain, father of Senator John McCain, who was at that point languishing in captivity with the Viet Cong. Chris C. Kraft, or Christopher Columbus Kraft, the architect of NASA's Mission Control Center, went directly to the man himself. McCain sat and listened, surrounded by Navy brass, puffing his characteristic enormous cigar. Kraft presented the plan, finishing with the words, Admiral, I realize the Navy has made its Christmas plans, and I am asking you to change them. And a final plea of, we need you. McCain responded, Best damn briefing I've ever had. Give this young man whatever he wants. Russia, for their part, had consigned themselves to watching the Apollo progress with interest, as their ships had a nasty habit of deploying their parachutes whenever the weeks drew on. The three men of Apollo 8 attended a soiree hosted by the White House in their honour. Another aviation all-star popped his head into the Apollo 8 story, none other than Lucky Lindy himself, Charles Lindbergh, the first man to cross the Atlantic by plane, not the only time he would raise his Nazi-loving head above the Apollo 8 parapet. The day before their flight, he would have a private audience with them and would chat as an equal that was past perturbed some of the men. Just for posterity's sake, the Nazi group Lindbergh had led was called America First. Cool facts. Anyway. Part 3. The Mission The mission's insignia showed a red figure of eight encircling the Earth and the Moon, reflecting both the name of the mission and its purpose. Apollo 8 would do something never done before. There was also a Jules Verne connection to this story of going around the world. They wanted to call the spacecraft Columbiad, after the giant cannon that fires a spacecraft into orbit in Verne's century-old novel From the Earth to the Moon, but they had to settle for the all-American Columbia instead. As the men climbed into their hatch, they spotted a sign of the season, as it were. Little Christmas decorations were hung on each seat by Gunther Wendt, one of von Braun's men, and the last man they would see before they closed the hatch behind them. Ten, nine, we have ignition sequence start. The engines are armed. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit, we have, 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 we have
Eastern Standard Time. Looks good. Well cleared the tower. Oh, there's the rumble in our building. It looks good. It looks like a good flight. It's a beautiful takeoff so far. This building is shaking under us. Our camera platform is shaking. But what a beautiful flight. Man, perhaps on the way to the moon. If all continues to go well. As they settled in, they would need to readjust their coordinates, which they did by comparing their position to 35 stars in the sky, which the computer and Jim Lovell had committed to memory. Not long after releasing their seatbelts, Lovell accidentally triggered the CO2 cannon's life jacket through exuberant space floating. They solved this actually rather dangerous issue by leaking it out the urine pipe to the outside of the ship. They sped up to 24,200 miles per hour directly away from the Earth and quickly became the record holder for the men to make it furthest from the Earth. Meanwhile in Houston, the families of the men became besieged by reporters and would struggle to maintain private moments in which to think about what their husbands and fathers were facing. To help this, all families had a squawk box in their house so they could keep track of the communications between Mission Control and Apollo 8. The delay would grow as the ship made its progress away from the Earth, but there's also an artificial delay to allow NASA to kill the feed should anything go wrong. Apollo 1 had taught them the importance of that. On a similar note, Anders had left two tapes behind him in Houston, one to be played on Christmas Day and one to be played if he wasn't coming back. Many aspects of the mission were textbook. One that was not was the vomiting and diarrhoea that afflicted Borman, the commander, after a few hours in. Like the CO2 can previously, this is generally a nothing problem, but in space could be a catastrophe. They even considered scrubbing the mission under the advice of the chief physician. That suggestion was given little time by Borman, who was, while vomiting, piloting a rocket to the moon, and I quote, that is pure, unadulterated horseshit. The mission continued. And instead of the bug the mission control feared would eventually infect the entire crew, the astronaut and former test pilot had in fact just some severe motion sickness. Bit of vomit was not stopping anything now. The world was watching closely. Press in Asia led with Hong Kong man on the way to the moon to mark the fact that James Andrews was actually born there on a US base. In mission control, a man called Milt Windler just Marvel's name, Milt Windler, was planning to distribute little flags with the number one on each, but was agonising over when the right moment was. As the mission progressed, he would think better of this rather tacky move, overcome by the significance of events. 55 hours, 39 minutes and 55 seconds in, the gravity of the moon began to kick in, and the gravity of the earth began to recede. As the men began to approach the moon, Bowman's wife Susan had managed to put through a coded message to her husband. The custard is in the oven at 350 degrees. Her shorthand for everything is as it should be, and she is taking care of everything at home, so he can take care of everything where he is. Also in Houston, Chris Craft and Bob Gilruth observed how it had been ten years and one month since the organisation that would lead to the creation of NASA had been formed. Kraft observed, quote, We've got three men behind the moon. A first for mankind. Apollo 8 had begun its first orbit, for a significant portion of which they were behind the moon and couldn't receive or send any signals. 
This was one of two signal dead zones on the mission, the other being when the ship was re-entering the atmosphere and the superheated particles around it would prevent signals getting through. Both led to a lot of tension for those underground, waiting to hear whether or not everything continued to be okay. After 35 minutes and 52 seconds, not that anyone was counting, signal was re-established. Anders got to work on his duty of chief photographer. And from 60 miles up, he began documenting multiple targets for possible landing sites for the Apollo 11 mission that was to come. Among the contenders were the amazingly named Ocean of Storms and the Fra Mauro Highlands, though the Sea of Tranquility would win out in the end. As they took their shots, they realized that they hadn't in fact seen the Earth, as they had been purposefully facing the ship towards the moon's surface. Once they did reorient the ship, they managed to capture one of the world's most famous shots of space, Earthrise on Christmas Eve. A beautiful image of a new age with all of humanity, less the three of them, in the frame. The day itself would be marked by a special broadcast, which would be one of the most watched events in world history, up until the moon landing itself a few months later. This was a lot of pressure. The men had asked a lot of people for ideas as to how to fill this time with something worthwhile that captured the significance of the moment. On the ground, their families tried to have a normal Christmas Eve, as best they could, hosting their guests and taking care of the kids. Needless to say, this was a different time for women in society, but even then the expectations on astronauts' wives were particularly exacting, not least an expectation to address the media frequently, despite their husbands being essentially in grave peril. Of all the wives, I'd like to mention Marilyn Lovell, who made an effort to get to her church in private to have a quiet moment, facilitated by Father Wraith, when she got there, the organ was playing, and they lit the candles for her. As the men circled the moon a number of times, it became apparent that they had been pushing things too hard, pushing themselves too hard. And they tried to get some sleep before the broadcast. Such was their state of mind, though. Borman's commander had to lay down the law to get their cooperation. Right now, get to bed. I'm not kidding you. And when there was further protest, he concluded with, this is a closed issue. Anders and Lovell went to sleep. They opened the broadcast when it came with some awkward comments and eventually gave the people at home a view out of their porthole window, including the seas of tranquility, fertility and crises. They then concluded with the following message from the book of Genesis. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8, have a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning was the first day. 
their final lap of the moon. It was time to fire the thrusters and engage their final burn of fuel in order to break the moon's gravitational pull. This had to be just perfect, or they would not have another chance. A haunting thought from the book I read was that if these men died, they might be there forever, in orbit, haunting anyone who chose to look up at the moon for all time, sealed in a rotating bullet of failure and death. Back in Houston, Valerie Anders and Susan Borman would meet up to get through this fresh challenge. But Marilyn Lovell decided not to change a thing in her approach. Although up and down her street there were candles lit for those three men, placed inside paper bags and holding up against the stiff wind that was blowing. When Marilyn got home from the church, she put the kids to bed and handed out eggnog to the assembled journalists. Back up in space, behind the moon, the Apollo 8 rockets came to life once more, though only the men of the ship knew that for sure. Once the ship came out the far side, and screens in Houston flickered back to life, a voice came over the receiver. Houston, Apollo 8, over. Hello, Apollo 8. Last clear. Roger. Please be informed there is a Santa Claus. On Christmas Day itself, the men tucked into slightly larger than normal ration packs, which included a green fireproof ribbon with a card reading Merry Christmas, and plastic pouches of turkey and gravy, cranberry sauce and stuffing, and a little bottle of brandy for each man, which their commander refused them permission to drink. Even then, they were pretty exhausted, so they probably would have driven them insane. At 3am on the 27th, the ship became visible in the Earth's atmosphere. Visible, but moving at a speed of 20,000 miles per hour and rising. The landing point which they were to hit quite accurately was in the Pacific, 600 miles northwest of a notable landmass. Any guesses? Of course, Christmas Island. Go ahead, Apollo 8. The ship was blacked out from comms about 25 seconds after hitting the atmosphere, and the men inside would experience serious pressure on re-entry. Two of the men inside thought of being in a similar position three Christmases before on Gemini. They reached 6.84 Gs before the forces fell off, and they began slowing until, with the help of their parachutes, they hit the water at 21 miles per hour. On Earth, everyone ached to hear the men were okay, and to see them on the deck of the ship. Mission control in Houston was prevented from celebrating until the men walked out on the deck, 
the Yorktown from the marine choppers, which they got to see shouting, hugging, and manfully exchanging cigars. The Kremlin also sent their congratulations. For the $24 billion that had been spent at the Apollo program, Congress were thanked directly in person when the three men would give an address to a joint meeting of Congress and Senate. It also apparently bought 200 tons of confetti to drop on the men as they paraded in New York City, where all the streets in the route were named Apollo Way for the day, and for the three men, they were named Time Magazine's Men of the Year. In retrospect, this would not be the most famous Apollo mission. Not even the second most famous. The fact that it was Christmas, and everyone got to see these unprecedented, fantastical events, surrounded by their own families, and seeing these men who couldn't be with theirs, I think helped underline the sacrifice they were potentially making, but also the value of the prize that they were risking it all for, for all of mankind. So whether you're on a spaceship, one of the other 7.5 billion kinds of being, you know, weirdly alone, we hope you reach out to someone this Christmas, as it is a very small world indeed, but it's a good Earth, and we're all clinging onto it together. If you can't reach out to someone else, reach out to us. Happy Christmas, or holidays, or whatever you fancy yourself, and hope to see you in the new year. And so that's it for another year. Thank you so much for listening. Music and sound effects in this episode came from Lee Rosevere, Kai Engel, Tristan Longren, Hello Flowers, and Sergei Cheremitinov. The principal source for this episode was Jeffrey Kluger's book, Apollo 8, The Thrilling Story of the First Mission to the Moon. For our patrons, this episode will be free of charge. Think of it as our small Christmas present to you. Have a wonderful festive season, and we'll see you in 2020.